Thank you, Nicole. Good morning, everyone. Oh, it's like a stadium crowd out there today. No kidding. Oh, what a beautiful, beautiful thing. Congratulations, Zane, Aiden, and Hannah. It's a good week, isn't it? Yeah, do you have finals left still? Oh, you're done with finals? Zane, yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, it is a big step. It's a big step to be graduating from high school. Are there any middle school graduates in here today? Because that's also a big step. Well, right there, stand up. <laughs> Everybody give him the applause that he's due. And there's one more. Oh, please, how many more? Uh, will all the middle school graduates please stand up? Oh, Trevor, are you in the back right there? And right here, uh, stand up again. All three of you, stand up. There we go. Uh, middle school gets passed over in so many ways. It should not get passed over. It's, my, it's a wonderful age of life. Middle schoolers are the best. I'll fight you over that if you don't agree with me. Uh, my name is Crystal Kurgis. Uh, I love being part of this church family. By day, I serve as the Vice President of Discipleship for Young Life. By night, I like to read books. That's basically the essence of my life right there. Um, and today we're going to talk about an amazing epic story. If you love epics like The Odyssey and Beowulf and Paradise Lost and Lord of the Rings, let's look at an epic this morning. I want to start with something from the Gospels. In one of the Gospel stories about Jesus, there is a religious leader who approaches him one day and says, Teacher, what is the most important commandment that there is? Uh, in one of the accounts, Jesus turns the question back, to the asker, which is brilliant. That's a brilliant pedagogical strategy. But in the other one, Jesus himself answers. And he says, this is from Mark 12, he says, listen, O Israel. That doesn't sound like a command, but it is a command. Listen, O Israel. Yahweh, our God, is the one and only God, and you must love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. He was reciting a passage from Deuteronomy, which is one of the most well-known passages uh, from the Hebrew scriptures for Jews of that day, often called the Shema, because that's what the word listen is, Shema. And even though the Shema was spoken before Jesus came in flesh, the Shema tethers the Old and the New Testament in beautiful ways. Uh, the story we're going to look at this morning as Nicole mentioned in Judges, does not quote the Shema word for word, but it is woven throughout it in all kinds of ways. So uh, Nicole set the stage a little bit. I'll give you a really quick one down. There's Adam and there's Sin, and then there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who become the nation of Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel, and they end up enslaved in Egypt. And then there's Moses, who helps rescue them, and Joshua, who helps get them into the Promised Land. And this story happens after Joshua has died. And the Jews are now in the promised land. They were called Hebrews at that point. They're in the promised land, but they didn't clear and cleanse the promised land of all of the pagan idols and altars that they were supposed to. And so there's this ongoing um, battle within themselves that keeps things unsettled. And here's what the cycle looks like throughout the book of Judges. And if you go home to read the whole book of Judges, be ready, because it's a very difficult, and difficult to read as you get further and further into it. Because people are 
awful sometimes, and the Bible doesn't clean it up for us. This is the cycle that we get into. The people disobey God and do their own thing. Uh, They start worshiping other gods and themselves, probably also. Things go badly. Surprise! When they go badly, they eventually complain and cry out to God. God hears them, has pity on them, usually send someone to help rescue them, and then there's peace for several decades. It's usually their 40 years or 80 years, which clearly are iconic numbers, but that's what they are. And then rinse and repeat over and over and over and over again. It's the same cycle. So our story today takes place in the time of the judges, and these are not judges the way that we think of judges today who are sitting behind a bench and making decisions. These are leaders, sometimes they did actually make judicious decisions about a conflict or how they were gonna deal with this situation, but mostly they were warriors and military leaders who led the nation of Israel. Um, appointed by the Lord. One of them was a woman, Deborah, and she is a rock star. She's one of the only ones in the book of Judges who seems to get it right from beginning to end and has one of the most beautiful songs that's ever sung. It's a whole page in scripture. But after her, each one gets continually worse. Things just go downhill. In fact, the book of Judges ends this way. In those days, Israel had no king and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. In our story, I'm gonna, I'll set the stage with some things. You don't need to jump around. I'll get you to a spot where we'll all read together. But um, beginning in chapter 6, this is where things are at. We're on the rinse and repeat cycle now. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight after there had been peace for a while because he'd saved them. So the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. That's one of the Canaanite nations, the Midianites. And the Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains and in caves and in strongholds. And whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel. And they'd camp in the land and they'd destroy the crops as far away as Gaza, They left the Israelites with nothing to eat. They took all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. And these enemy hordes, coming with their livestock and tents, were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels, too too numerous to count. And they stayed until the land was stripped bare. This happened every year. This wasn't like a one-time story. This happened for seven years. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites, That's the downward part of the spiral. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. And in God's faithfulness, even though really every time this happens, the Lord has every right to say, look, (laughs) you got yourself in this situation, you figure out how to get out of it. That's really what they deserved, um, but that's not how he dealt with them when it was way back in the Hebrew scriptures and when it was in the time of Christ, and that's what we all deserved to hear but didn't. So we get to a part that uh, Nicole read for us, but it says, the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah. It's pretty interesting in scripture, Zane, Mr. Forestry, everything important in scripture happens around a tree, under a tree, on a tree, every single thing. So they're sitting underneath a great tree, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezer. 
Gideon, the son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites, the bad guys, who used to always come and take it, as we learned. Uh, Gideon, who is the hero of our story, like most heroes, starts with very humble beginnings. He's a farmer in hiding. That's who he is. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, Yahweh the Lord is with you. And I would like to suggest to you this morning that actually he was with him. In the Old Testament, sometimes an angel of the Lord appears and sometimes the angel of the Lord appears. And when the angel of the Lord appears, he is speaking as though he is the Lord himself. And most Old Testament scholars believe that that is uh, the visible expression of the invisible God, if that's a familiar phrase to you. So, the Lord is with you. Actually, he's with you. He's sitting right here by you. Well, sir, Gideon said, if Yahweh is with us, why is all of this happening to us? And where are all the miracles that our ancestors told us about? Because they recited the stories over and over and over again. That's how people learn things. Didn't they say to us, Yahweh brought us up out of Egypt, but now Yahweh has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites, the enemy. And then the Lord Yahweh turned to him. Do you see what happened there? The angel of the Lord is now described as the Lord Yahweh turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But, said Gideon, the humble farmer in hiding, how can I rescue Israel? I mean, my clan is the weakest of all the clans of, Abi, of um, Manasseh, one of the tribes. Manasseh is actually a son of Joseph, so a grandson of, G of um, Israel. And in the weakest clan of this tribe, I am the least in all of my family. Sounds a little bit like Moses. And the Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting one man. It really would be more accurate as we see as we go on if it said, as if you were fighting only as there were one of you. Because that's what it's going to feel like, I think, at some point. Gideon is not sure about this crazy proposition. Uh, when he analyzes and thinks about things, this seems in totally impossible. Not just improbable, but impossible. He's a farmer. He's not a fighter. I'm a farmer, not a fighter. He's got no experience, no status, no power. His thoughts do not accept the premise of what Yahweh is saying to him. And his feelings certainly aren't in agreement with what God is saying. His heart isn't in it. His head isn't in it. His heart isn't in it. But God gives him reassurances that he is with him now, and he will be with him. Eventually, because of the Lord's responses to prayer and other things, Gideon becomes so committed in his thoughts and so convicted in his heart that he goes to his father's land and he pulls down a pagan altar that his father had put up. This is very risky and dangerous. And he cuts down a pagan goddess's pole and he makes a sacrifice to the one true God showing that he is all in. He's in in his thoughts, he's in in his heart, and now he's obediently destroying all vestiges of pagan worship. His actions are also in. 
all of him is ready to serve the almighty God. Maybe you've been in that place where something big is coming, you've worried about it, you've been scared about it, and then everything sort of comes together and you're all in. And then the big thing actually arrives and reality hits. So he's all in. I'm going to do this. You're going to weep with me. I trust you. But it says, soon afterward, the armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east formed an alliance against Israel. Now it's not just the Midianites. There's more. They form an alliance, and they uh, cross the Jordan, and they camp in the valley of Jezreel. So actually things were worse than uh, Gideon thought they were at first. And then the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with power. This is another theme that shows up in Judges as things spiral downward. Things can only turn for the good if God himself is there. People didn't yet have the invitation to invite the risen Christ to inhabit their life. And so the Spirit of God would descend on someone for this task, as happened here, and clothed Gideon with power. And so Gideon blew a ram's horn as a call to arms, and the men of the clan of Abiezer came to him. And he also sent messengers throughout Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, those are other tribes of Israel, and he summoned their warriors, and all of them responded. So things were worse than he thought, but now more warriors are coming to his help than he thought, so maybe he's going to be okay again. Now that it's actually time to obey God and go into action with this crazy plan, I think this is when the real test comes. Uh, if you go back and do the math backwards in this, you're going to find out that he had about 30,000 warriors there, which sounds like a lot. When you get into the story, you find out that the enemies had way more than that. But still, 30,000, I think, feels pretty substantial. And God is going to get everything ready to go now in this crazy thing. Well, actually, let me go back a moment. He calls, he has all these warriors, and Gideon now, who was all in, suddenly isn't all in. He said, okay, all of them responded, it says in 635, and in 636, Gideon says to God, hey, um, if you're truly going to use me to rescue as you promised, could you please prove it to me by doing this? Which God did. And then he said, okay, well, could you also prove it to me a second time by doing this? Which God did. Being all in when things started getting real kind of backtracked a little bit. But God graciously responded his two requests, and he's all in again. So Gideon and his army got up early, and they went as far as the spring of Harad. I'm in chapter 7 now. The armies of Midian and the alliance of all the other people were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. So they can see them. They know they're there, and they can see how many there are. The Lord said to Gideon, now, I think this is where you're looking for the big, here's how you are going to rescue my people. The Lord said to Gideon, now is your moment, Gideon. Now is your time. 
gather up your army of 30,000 plus warriors and head forth to defeat the overwhelmingly enormous and evil enemy. Except that what he actually said is, uh, you have too many warriors with you. Which feels totally wrong. He could see that he didn't have as many as the others. He's been promised that he's going to win, and God's first response is, you have too many guys. You've got too many little army guys. It's not going to work this way. And if I let you fight with this many, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. So this is how we're going to address this issue. If I let all of you fight, if I let all of you army guys fight, it's going to go to your head in a bad way. God wasn't looking for all of a crowd of people. He was looking for people who would give all of themselves to him fully. So here's the first test in 7.3. He says, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid, whoever's heart isn't fully in it, they can leave. They can go home right now. There were 30 plus thousand. 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000. I know you haven't gone to uh, West Point yet, but I'm telling you, just mathematically speaking, this is not good strategy. This is terrible strategy. We're down to 10,000 now, but everybody whose heart wasn't in it is gone. The next test is going to be to find out whose head isn't in the game. And it's this very strange kind of drinking game at the stream. And God, Yahweh, tells Gideon, have everybody get a drink of water and then watch them and divide them into two groups. The people who take the water in their hands and bring it up to their mouth like a dog with their tongue bringing water up quickly and pulling it up to their face so they can still see what's going on and they're dialed in and they're aware, those are the guys you're going to keep. The ones who lay down on the ground, dip their head in the water, kind of splash it on their face, they're not in the game. You're going to send those folks home. Now, some of you may remember this from your Sunday school book. I think when I was little, I just saw this part. But this morning, when I was looking back through these slides, I'm like, this guy right here, he is a bully. Do you see him pointing at them and laughing at the ones who somehow he knows who's doing it wrong? They don't know they're being tested, by the way. God doesn't say, all right, I'm going to watch and see how you drink water. They have no idea. They're just told to get a drink of water. Uh, this is a little more beautiful and contemplative, but that guy standing on the side reminds me of the coach who scares everybody because they say nothing. They just look at you silently and you don't know if you're doing it right or you're doing it wrong. And then also, if you're a rebel warrior, <laughs> those are all rebel warriors who are headed off to the Death Star, apparently. But this is the scene, and when Gideon watches to see how each man drinks the water, there are 300 left. 22,000 down to 10,000. 10,000 down to 300. And I have to say, this might be one of the most comical scenes in Scripture. 300? No worries. I know they've got tens of tens of tens of thousands. 300? Fine. Which actually, it is fine because Almighty God is with them. And hey, their head is in the game, their heart is in the game, they're going to actually do the thing, their hands are in the game. So that's the next point, is what are they going to be asked to do? And if the number 300 is preposterous, the battle strategy is even more preposterous. 
This is what they're going to do. Let me read to you from 17. So Gideon goes back to the Israelite camp after kind of scoping out the enemy camp. And he said, get up. For the Lord Yahweh has given us victory over the Midianite hordes. And he divided the 300 men into three groups. So now you've got battalions of 100 against tens of thousands. And when I come, uh, uh, sorry, he divided them into three groups and he gave each man a ram's horn and a clay jar with a torch in it. I hope that they also each had a sword, but there's actually no mention of any weapons in here. And then he said to them, keep your eyes on me. When I come to the edge of the camp, do just as I do. And as soon as I and those who are with me blow the ram's horns, you blow your horns too. All around the entire camp, all 100 of you around, however many tens of thousands there are, you blow your horns and then shout for the Lord and for Gideon. I do believe I remember shouting that in Sunday school when I was young. It was part of a very exciting Sunday school lesson. But I wasn't in danger when I shouted it. Well, it was just after midnight. The question in my mind is, are these 300 men whose heads are in it and their hearts are in it, are they actually going to now do this, this crazy thing that the Lord has asked them to do? And they do. It was just after midnight, after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and the 100 men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp, and suddenly Gideon and his men blew their ram's horns and broke their clay jars, which I think means then their torches go out, because their torches are in the clay jars, so they're in the dark. And then all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars, and they held the blazing torches in their left hands and the horns in their right hands, and they all shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And guess what? They won. Really not because of anything they'd done. The Midianites are so just completely um, confused and freaked out and in the dark, they start killing each other. That is a good movie scene right there. They start doing the work that the Israelites all thought they would have to do. Um, the, the rebel warriors, this might not be a surprise to you that all the Midianites, which is on the facing page, all look like Darth Vader. But they do the work by blowing the horns and shattering their jars, and then all the Darth Vaders kill themselves. This one, I think, looks like a halftime show. Everybody's in the same uniform, and they're like synchronized moving at the same time, and I'm sure that their horn blowing is perfectly in sync. And this one, um, there's not as many pictures of this story as others, but this one feels like the scene from Hamilton where he said, I am not going to lose my shot, right? Or maybe Les Mis. This is a very, very powerfully, mm, something's going on scene. But whatever happened, however it looked, they won. They won. Because all of them, all 300 of them, all 300, Follow the Almighty God with all of themselves. There's just two things I want you to think about this week as we think about the story. First, the story took place long before Jesus lived on earth in a human body. And yet all of scripture is tied to and points to Jesus. So this story does that. I think one of the things this story reminds us is that bigger and more is not always God's game plan. And sometimes bigger and more is not good for us. And he wants to protect us from any opportunity to think that we are the ones who accomplished something. 
But I think this story also offers a really profound and beautiful picture of discipleship, which means following the Lord. Your life of following the Lord is discipleship. Even before we had ever hear or read the word disciple in Scripture, discipleship is becoming more like Jesus and living a life of fierce faithfulness to Jesus as our King and Savior. I want to give you a really quick mental model of discipleship that might help you think about this this week. I think every person is head, heart, and hands. Your thoughts, your affections, and your actions. That's who we are. And most of us, because we live in a fallen world, um, at some point in our life are very disintegrated people. Those don't overlap. Our thoughts don't match up with our affections, and then we act differently than our thoughts are pushing us to. Actually, Romans 7 and 8 has a beautiful, beautiful expression of this. But over time, as we, if we're called and we respond to the call of Jesus' invitation to new life, and those things begin overlapping and they become integrated, we become more of the people we are meant to be, whose thoughts, actions, and affections line up. And as we move closer and closer to Jesus during a lifetime of discipleship, this is not a fast process, this is a lifelong process, that inner core gets bigger and stronger and more in Christ. That's who we are, that's our identity. At one point, it was the Israelites who were the main identified people of God. Now, it's those who are in Christ. And as that gets bigger, that outside part gets smaller. It takes up less real estate. It's less about me spreading myself as far and wide as I can. It's less about 22,000, 32,000 of me, and it's more about the one me that God intended me to be. And we become people who love the Lord, trust the Lord, surrender to the Lord, and obey the Lord. And there is nothing harder than that in all of life, to be that person. Luckily, we don't do it on our own. But it's a long, slow process that requires daily commitment, daily dying to ourselves, daily surrender, daily submission. We don't just get to say, you know, I really love reading books and having deep discussions and yakking about theology, so I'm going to make sure that my head keeps moving closer to Jesus. Nor do we get to say, I really love contemplative retreats and silent prayer um, and being alone with the Lord, and that's all we do to move closer to Jesus. Nor do we get to say, what I really like to do is serve. I want to get out there, be on the ground, doing things for Jesus, and that's all that's focused on. That's not an option that the Lord gives us. He is very clear. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, which that word really could be translated as all your muchness over abundance, meaning all of your everything. If it doesn't fit into your mind, heart, hand, then everything else, all of your muchness, that's what God wants of you. So we don't have the luxury of picking and choosing. And I think the way this happens, there's not a simple uh, formula for it, but I do think you can envision it as time in the word, time in prayer, time in worship, and life in the church. Those are the things that tend to move our head, heart, and hands closer to Jesus. And as they move closer to him, the outflow of that are things like humble service, faithful witness, generous giving, sacred justice, which means the justice that's outlined in Scripture by the Lord. Joyful thanks, deeper wisdom, 
patient suffering, willing sacrifice. You know, except for his demands that God, or that when Gideon demanded that God prove himself, except for those moments, I think Gideon seems like a pretty perfect hero. His head, heart, and hands are fully in the game. And then things disintegrate. First, it's kind of his head that starts moving away. A couple guys come to him and say, how come you didn't tell us about this amazing opportunity to fight and kill people and make a name for ourselves?" And Gideon says, why are you saying that about me? What have I accomplished that you haven't? I'm the least of my clan, the whole thing he said before. And then as soon as those men left, you know what he did? He went off to find some more people to kill. And when he found some people to kill, he asked his son to kill them. But his son did not draw his sword, for he was only a boy, and he was afraid. What is Gideon doing? And then the people come to him and say, be our ruler. You are amazing. You and your sons and your grandsons, you'll be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. This is exactly what the Lord knew might happen. And Gideon says, oh, no, 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 no. I can't rule over you. I'm the least of my clan. I'm the least within my clan. My clan is the least of all the clans. But I do have one request. If you would each give me one earring from your plunder that you got, that would be great. And with that earring, the hundreds, thousands of them, because more people came, he smelts it into uh, some kind of idol. And guess what? He starts worshiping it, and the people start worshiping it. It became a trap for Gideon and his family. And all of the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it. His head is out of the game. His heart has moved away. And pretty soon all of his actions do. It says he goes home and he has 70 sons born to him because he had many wives and also a concubine. And those sons battle it out and lead to the next round of awful experiences for the nation of Israel. In other words, keeping our heads, heart, and hands, moving closer to Jesus and in Jesus is something that has to be attended to every day because there are always things trying to pull them away, even if you are Gideon. This is how the story ends. When Gideon died, the Israelites worshipped the images of Baal. They even made Baal their god. They forgot the Lord their God, who had rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them, nor did they show any loyalty to the family of Gideon. The Almighty God, Yahweh, rescues us from all of our enemies. But he asks for, he commands, he deserves all of us collectively, as part of his local church, which is part of his larger kingdom, and also personally. All of my head, all of my hands, all of my heart, or all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. So this week, a couple things to think about. How do you love, trust, surrender to, and obey the Almighty God with all of yourself? How do you engage in the formational practices of time in the word, time in prayer, time in worship, life in the church? And how do you display a life of discipleship 
which is the outflowing of your attitudes and affections? And how will you do those things? Because there is, none of us has arrived at having all of this figured out. And I think the real question is, do you, do I, do we, really truly want to give the almighty God all of ourselves, all of our thoughts, all of our affections, all of our actions, all of our life, all of our muchness, all of our everything. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Judges ends by this. In the days of Israel, or in those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Except they did have a king, Yahweh. And we have a king, King Jesus. He has given us all of himself. And I think, I'm confident that we are called to give him all in return. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the things that are revealed in it about you, about humanity, about your desire to be in deep, intimate relationship with all of us and with all of us. We love you, Lord. Please protect us from ourselves and our desires to be something significant and big and powerful on our own. And now, may the Almighty God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace as he gives all of himself to you and we daily give all of ourselves to him. Amen.